Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as Pastor Dane Skelton shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Dane. I forgot to mention earlier, just wanted to say thank you. We had a team of people who worked to... um, solve an acoustic problem that we've had for as long as I've been here. And um, Mark found these wonderful acoustic panels and, and at a great price. We had researched this years before and it was just phenomenally expensive to try to get these kinds of panels. So we found a great price. And then Desiree picked the color for us and then, and then the Westbrooks and the Prairie's team basically figured it out and lined it all up. And so I'm really grateful to everybody for doing this. You may not notice a big change, but those of us who sing and speak up here can notice a difference. And so I just wanted to give credit where credit was due with the team that that, uh, put that together. If you will turn, please, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And we talked last week about answering God's call. Once we've answered the call, we've got to follow the plan. And the plan is basically this. The people of God are to testify to the truth of Jesus and the power of the Spirit to the ends of the earth. That's in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Let's read that together. This is, the, uh, this is Luke writing, and he says to his sponsor, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. That's God's plan. His plan for reaching the world with the message of Jesus is to begin in Jerusalem, or our hometown, so to speak, and Judea, our community, our county, and then Samaria, our neighbors all around, our larger country, and then the world, the whole world, all the way. That's how the church is, that's God's plan for expanding the kingdom in the world. It hasn't changed, it's not going to change, that's always been God's plan. Following that plan, however, requires strategic thinking, practical goal setting, and tactical execution. Strategic thinking, practical goal setting, and tactical execution. Put another way, it takes brains, it takes ambition, and it takes determination 
to be able to adjust when things on the ground change. Let me give you a great example of that. In, the, in September of 2018, I interviewed a man named Dr. Alex Abraham. He is the founding director of Operation Agape. He's a neurologist and the founding director of Operation Agape in Delhi, India. And God has used over the years Operation Agape to plant over 13,000 churches in the Punjab region. That's the northeast region of India. And this is how it began. It started with a strategy. He said, we started as a prayer movement. The first two years was just saturation prayer coverage. Also in 1989 and for the next five years was a saturation evangelism in Punjab state. I have lived there for the last 40 years. He's actually from the southern part of India called Kerala. He said 20 million people live in Punjab, about 20,000 neighborhoods and approximately 4 million homes. We covered about 75% of the homes. We started with six people in January of 1989. It grew till we had 100 people visiting with every person, visiting 50 homes per day. Out of that, we visited 5,000 homes per day, leaving literature, sharing the gospel, and praying for the sick. Punjab was ripe for a harvest. Because of the terrorism of that time, most of the homes had lost someone to death either because of the terrorism itself or because of the extreme police violence in response to the terrorism. So they were looking for a solution to bring peace. And so the message that we developed was the Prince of Peace for Punjab. That's strategic thinking. They were thinking about how do we reach this region of India? What would be best to do? Then they moved from the strategic to the practical. People were so open to the gospel that he said, we published Luke's gospel and tracts and Bible stories. We had a small follow-up card inserted with the literature. Every day we received responses from those cards and we didn't keep track of the numbers, but we had two people working full-time in our offices responding to the request for correspondence Bible courses. We would send them a New Testament with the course, typically in Hindi. Those who finish the correspondence course, we would invite to a seekers conference. So they're following up. They're being very practical in their strategic plan. The response was maybe five people, maybe 20, maybe 100. So in 1995, we decided that was not working well enough. Whenever you have a plan and you start to execute the plan, as soon as you start to execute it on the ground, things change and you have to make adjustments. That's what they did. So in 1995, we decided this is not the best way to do discipleship. Evangelism is not the same as discipleship. And correspondence courses can't do the job. God's plan for discipleship is the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. The great commission is making disciples. I will build my church. So then they changed their tactical approach. We started thinking, we're professionals. We're doctors. We're not priests and pastors. Let's do some work here like we would if we were approaching this like we were doctors. And finally, the Lord spoke to us. So we started planning locally led independent indigenous churches. That means indigenous means the local people there are leading it. So we have saturation evangelism for five years, then planting churches. And then there's this idea called win the winnable. That's another tactical adjustment that they made. If there's a group response in an area, then plan a church where you find that group response. So in 1993 to 96, we planted a few churches in responsive areas, 
And that began to grow and multiply from those places where, that were responsive to over 13,000 churches. Operation Agape is also the group that did 12 New Testament translations in an unheard of uh, unreached languages, 12 unreached languages in an unheard of four years, record time in four years, using the newer technologies and approaches to Bible translation. So it is one thing to answer God's call. That's an essential step of obedience. It is another thing to follow God's plan, and following that plan requires strategic thinking, practical goal setting, and tactical execution. It takes brains, it takes ambition, and it requires determination. And Operation Agape is a great example of that in India. Now, if we look out at our cultural and political landscape, things look pretty bleak. Pornography addiction is rampaging through men and women's lives. Gender confusion is not only being promoted, it is being pushed on the young and required by law. National leaders are pouring gasoline on the fires of racial division, and there are many, many other things. And so when we look out at our culture, at the culture God has called us to, things look pretty bleak. But God is not dead, and his plan for mankind has not changed. He has sovereignly appointed you and I. He has sovereignly appointed us, this church and all the other churches like it in this country. He has sovereignly appointed us to be here in this time and for this to be our task. And Christ died for our sins. Christ was raised for our justification. He was seated at the right hand of God and he is still leading his church. And so what we need to do is we need to keep our eyes on that. Yes, the world may be going literally to hell around us, but we need to keep our eyes on God. What have you called us to do? Who have you called us to be as a people? Because that's our task here on earth until Christ comes or God takes us home. And that's what our leadership conference is about. It's reaching the next generation for Christ. It's about helping us focus on God's plan, not our culture's catastrophes. We're going to take into account what's happening in the culture. They're going, these guys are going to help us think strategically and practically and tactically about how to do, how to follow God's plan. And I'm very excited about that. If you haven't registered yet, I would encourage you to register today. Pull that green flyer out, sign up, and let us know if you're coming on Friday night. And we will look forward to seeing you there. So that is my um, shameless promotion, shameless promotion of the conference. And I hope that you will be part of that. I encourage you to register and be challenged with these guys' ideas. But there is something really fundamental about God's plan that we've already read here in the book of Acts, that all of us must face before we can even begin to embrace the kind of thinking that our conference speakers are going to share with us this coming week. All of us, including yours truly, have obstacles to witnessing. That's the word Jesus used, to sharing our testimony to talking about Jesus. All of us have discomfort when talking to our friends about Jesus. And that discomfort comes from at least three places. Number one, 
we know we cannot answer all their questions. We do not know everything that we would like to know, and it makes us uncertain and unsure of ourselves. A guy called me this week, he's a, an acquaintance of mine here in the community, to ask me questions about end time stuff. And part of our conversation went like this. He was asking, like, are the vaccines setting us up for the mark of the beast? And I had to, I had to tell him, I said, you know, I don't know. And frankly, I'm more concerned about how to get along with my neighbor who's really mad at me right now and how to reach her for Christ. Because that's what I know I'm supposed to do. The unknowns I can't know. And we, so we hesitate because we cannot answer all their questions. Second, we hesitate because the circumstances feel awkward. I mean, what are the two taboo topics in all social interactions? Religion and politics. What's worse is politics is now religion in most of our country. And we hesitate because we know that the two have been conflated and we don't want to go there. It's uncomfortable. Third, we hesitate because we feel powerless. You know, we're emotional creatures. I know some of you guys don't have any, Brian, but we're emotional creatures. It's just too easy to pick on. You know, some days we're up, other days we're down. We get the idea that somehow our powers of persuasion are supposed to be the thing that does it for people, to convince people. But we feel powerless. And so what I want to do is just try to answer from the text today just a very small part of the nine verses that we read, those difficulties that we have with sharing our own story of our walk with Jesus, with the word witness. And so three lessons for following God's plan about being his witnesses. Number one, witness without speculation. And verse seven, what's Jesus basically saying to these guys? It's not for you to know the times or dates. Guys, do not speculate on what you cannot know. Do not speculate on what you cannot know. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. It's a waste of opportunity. And by times and dates, when Jesus said that, you can almost say seasons. It's not just the day or the hour. It's really the decade or the era so when somebody calls you and says, do you think that these things are getting us ready for the mark of the beast? I don't know. Jesus said specifically, I won't know the decade. I won't even know the century and neither will you. I can't answer questions like that. And so I don't worry about them. I do have something he's, he's told me to do. And that's what I try to pay attention to. The conditions prior to Jesus' return that he mentions in his talk in Matthew that's recorded in Matthew 24, wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes in various places. Do you know those conditions have come and gone several times in the 2000 years since Christ was here on this planet? So if you think of an era or as a time dominated by a, or defined by a dominant culture, you think about it like this, the Roman Empire, 
the Ottoman Empire, the German Empire, the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, I've probably left some out, all have come and gone since Jesus. And the American era may well pass away as well before he comes. You know, we're the, right now, unless you take into account China, we're the sole remaining superpower. That's not going to last forever. So his people are not to waste time speculating on all of that stuff. Don't waste your energy on it. That's what Jesus is saying. Guys, you can't know. It's not for you to know. I had lunch with um, one of FCC's founding elders this past week. Phil Ramsey was running through town, so he called me for lunch. And there was a time uh, when several years ago, Phil came to me and he said, hey, I want to teach on eschatology this year. And I went, <gasps> because every time it's really easy for things to go sideways when you're teaching on end times stuff, eschatology. And he said, don't worry about it because I'm going to stick to God's purpose in eschatology, and that is giving us hope, motivating holiness, and motivating us to ministry in this life. He said, that's what I'm going to concentrate on. I said, great, and he, it was a great course that he taught. So Jesus in this passage is explicitly telling us not to waste our time speculating on the dates of his return and things like that. Soren Kierkegaard said, we live life forward, but we only understand it backward." We live life forward, but the, we only understand it backward. So there are many, many things God has not authorized us to know. We don't have the security clearance. It's not at our pay grade. And we are not ignorant by some cosmic accident. We are ignorant of these things because God has chosen for us to be ignorant of them. We don't know, for example... Why one child dies and another lives. We don't know our last day on earth. God never told Job the reasons for his suffering, as far as we know. He does not tell us many things. He is God. He doesn't have to. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. And to our children forever. So there's all these things God says we cannot know, but the things he's given us belong to us. And what he's given us is the gospel. What he's given us is the plan. And that's what belongs to us. Peter, you remember Peter walking on the beach with Jesus after the resurrection? Peter feels lousy because he's bailed on Jesus three times. He denied him three times. Jesus is reinstating him. John's following them down the beach a few paces behind. He's recording all of this. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And, and, and Peter says, well, what about him? What does Jesus say? What is that to you? It's none of your business. You follow me. You follow my plan, Peter. So our job, number one, witness without speculation. All we need to do, all we need to know is the plan and all we need to do is follow it. Number two, witness no matter what. Witness no matter what. No matter where we are or what we are doing or what circumstances we find ourselves in, God does call us to tell the message. He calls us to be a witness no matter what. 
Witness is from the Greek word martus, which is where we get the word martyr. That is one who bears witness by his death. A witness who is so convinced of the veracity of a thing that he will risk death before he will deny it or abandon his attempts to tell it. I found a great story about a young Nigerian man. Uh, this story happened in last year, in 2020, right before the pandemic hit. His name was Michael Nadi. He was in seminary with 270 other seminary students at Good Shepherd Seminary in Kaduna State. And on the evening of January 8th, 2020, an armed gang wearing military fatigues breached the gates, came in and, ca and kidnapped four seminary students. Among them was Michael. By the end of the month, three of the four boys had been freed, but not Michael. A few days later, his body was found dumped on the side of a road, massacred by his kidnappers. So it was a mystery. Why had Michael not been spared along with the other three? The same people were negotiating for their release. And some Nigerians and international authorities thought maybe that he had been killed as a bargaining piece to, to up the ante on the other three. Nobody really understood the reason until April of 2020 when one of his killers was captured. And the murderer's name was Mustafa Muhammad. So he was interviewed by Nigeria's newspaper. He was interviewed in prison by the Nigerian newspaper. And so they asked him, why did, you, why did you kill Michael? He did not allow me any peace. He just kept preaching to me his gospel. I did not like the confidence he displayed in his faith, and I decided to send him to an early grave. He witnessed no matter what. Now here's the interesting thing. I expect to meet some people like Mustafa in the coming days who have come to Christ. And when you meet those guys, it's an amazing thing because they won't quit. Their lives are forfeit. Humans are highly social creatures. Uh, we will put up with all kinds of shenanigans, all kinds of offenses and insults and rubbing us the wrong way in order to fit in with our crowd. And one of the things that we find out early is that being too serious about our religion will kind of guarantee that we stay on the outer rim of just about any social circle. It's interesting to be a pastor and walk into a bar, you know, or walk into a, walk into a company party and you're the preacher and everybody knows it. It's really interesting. Following the plan means witnessing no matter what the circumstances are whatever the surrounding circumstances. And so I want to urge you to embrace this part of the plan for two reasons. Number one, your friends need to know that they can trust you. And number two, it's incredibly liberating to do this. It's incredibly liberating. Let me explain what I mean by that. Your friends need to know that they can trust you. This is what I've learned. If people know that you are the Jesus person in the neighborhood in the town, in the community, in the company, in the classroom, on the hall, whatever, if they know you're the Jesus person, yes, they will treat you differently. But if you live with integrity, they begin to trust you. And eventually, that trust enables them to talk to you about spiritual things that they won't talk to anybody else about, but they'll come and talk to you. 
because they know you're the Jesus person. And you'll be surprised at the opportunities that you have if you're just comfortable in those clothes and say, yeah, I'm going to be the Jesus person here and I will live with integrity as much as I can. Second, it's incredibly liberating. I kind of remember when I just embraced my, my identity as a pastor and said, it's okay, I'm going to be the preacher wherever I go. I live in a small town. Everybody knows, you know. And I'm just going to be that guy because you stop worrying about who thinks what of you and you stop trying to manage your image. You just are who you are. And you live unapologetically. And that's real freedom. And it creates opportunities to tell your story and just to share about Jesus that you wouldn't believe otherwise. So please take those as encouragement. Your friends need to know that they can trust you. Be the Jesus woman. Be the Jesus guy. And it's just incredibly liberating. Stop worrying about managing your image. Just be that person. So the first two principles for following the plan are, number one, witness without speculation. Number two, witness no matter what, no matter where we are, what kind of circumstances we find ourselves in, the judge of all the universe has commanded us to testify. And he's responsible for the rest. I found this story this week. I thought it was great. This guy named Ken Fusan was dying. And he's a journalist, so he wrote his own obituary. It goes like this. Ken Fusan, born June 23, 1956, died January 3, 2020 at Nebraska Medical Center of liver cirrhosis and is stunned to learn that the world is somehow able to go on without him. Ken attended the University of Missouri-Columbia's famous School of Journalism. He attended it, which is a clever way of saying he almost graduated, but he didn't. Facing a choice between covering a story for the newspaper or taking his final exams, Ken went for the story. He never claimed to be smart, just committed. In 1981, Ken landed his dream job working as a reporter for the Des Moines Register. Ken won several national feature writing awards. No, he didn't win a Pulitzer Prize, but he's dead now, so get off his back. <laughs> in 2011, Ken accepted a job in the marketing department at Simpson College, where he remained until 2018. He was diagnosed with liver disease at the beginning of 2019, which is pretty ironic given how little he drank. He is survived by his sons who all brought Ken unsurpassed joy. He hopes they will forgive him for not making the point more often. He loved his boys and was and is extremely proud to be their father. Ken had many character flaws. If he still owes you money, he's sorry, sincerely. He prided himself on letting other drivers cut in line. For most of his life, Ken suffered from a compulsive gambling addiction that nearly destroyed him. But his church friends never gave up on him. Ken last placed a bet on September 5, 2009. He died clean. He hopes that anyone who needs help will seek it. Miracles abound. Ken's pastor says God can work miracles for you and through you. Skepticism may be cool, and for too many years Ken embraced it. But it was faith in Jesus Christ that transformed his life. That was the one thing he never regretted. 
It changed everything. God is good. Embrace every moment, even the bad ones. See you in heaven. Ken promises to let you cut in line. Now, he's writing that, and he knows he's dying. He knows he's not going to be the guy to deliver it. What's he doing? He's witnessing without speculation. He has no clue what's going to happen as a result of this. He's witnessing in spite of the circumstances. He can't be there to tell what's going to happen, what's going to fall out of all this. He was already in the habit of it. So when he knew and his number was up, he knew what to do. So if you combine the two principles, leave to God the things that are God and concentrate and concentrate on doing the things that are ours to do. Combine the two principles. And then third, witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Power is required for effective witnessing. Jesus said, wait for the gift to come, and when he comes, then you will be my witnesses. The word power is from the Greek word dunamis, which is power or ability. That's where we make, get our word dynamite. It is physical or moral ability as residing in a person or a thing. That's the dictionary definition. So all we do is tell the story. The Holy Spirit empowers the story, enables it, gives it ability to change a life. Without him, our testimony is completely ineffective. And we don't know. We can't tell when it's working. We don't provide the convincing power in our presentations. The Spirit does. That's another liberating truth that was revealed in this passage. It's not up to us to change people. I used to think that it was my responsibility to change whoever listened to me preach or whenever I was testifying to somebody. And I learned the hard way, it's not my responsibility. It's like Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Do I have to feel something in order for the Spirit to empower my witness? No. I used to think I did. If you have ever been moved by one of my sermons, it's because the Spirit did it without me feeling anything. I used to sit in my office and wait and pray and wait to feel the Holy Spirit filling me. Now, I pray every Sunday morning, sometimes multiple times, and ask the Lord to fill me before I preach but I almost never feel anything. And I remember one time when I finally, when I told my mentor back in Georgia what I had done, I said, you know, Phil, I just decided I'm gonna just pray and just believe that God has filled me and go, and go stand and deliver. He said, I am so glad to hear that. And it changed my preaching. It got better, at least people tell me it got better. Um, People responded well, and especially they would respond. It's like I would, I would preach, and I wouldn't feel a thing, just flat. And I'd go to the back door, and I'd be shaking hands, and people would say, you have no idea what God just did. And I was like, you're right, I don't know. You don't have to feel anything. 
just offer yourself over and say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. And I won't speculate. I'll just witness no matter the circumstances or whatever. So big idea. Once we've answered the call, we've got to follow the plan. God's plan is for the people of Jesus to testify to the truth of Jesus in the power of the Spirit to the ends of the earth. Witness without speculation. Witness no matter what. Witness in the power of the Spirit. I read this story this morning and I thought, what a great way to end this sermon. This man's name is Robert Wilton. If you've ever seen Christianity Today magazine, there's always a testimony on the last page. And they're usually very, very good. Robert Wilton spent the first couple of decades of his adult life as a stuntman in the movies. And he loved it. One of the things that affected him early, though, was when he was 26, his 32-year-old brother just dropped dead of a heart attack after a Thanksgiving meal. And Wilton sort of put the pedal to the metal and just lived hard for the next couple of decades. And he said, it happened, he said, there, something happened, though, after moving across country for film work. He said, I, heard, I overheard someone talking about God with one of the stunt guys. And he said, to my utter surprise, it was none other than the movie stunt coordinator himself. So eavesdropping on that conversation conjured up some old memories. He had a Sunday school understanding of God. It conjured up some old memories. Did I still believe in God or had I outgrown the childishness of Sunday school stories? He said, for one film gig up the coast, I caught a ride with the stunt coordinator, a man I dubbed the Preacher-nator. That must have been about the time Schwarzenegger was making his Terminator movies. And these guys were probably stuntmen on it. But don't you like that? His, the stunt coordinator was known as the preacher-nator. He was known as the preacher guy. He was the Jesus guy. I love that. When conversation inevitably turned to religion, I told him I was doing fine without God, and I began regaling him with stories of my close calls and narrow escapes on the set. Have you ever heard an unbeliever do that when you've talked about God? And stuff on the set. There was this time, for instance, when I was taped, tapped for a fire stunt at a monster truck rally. The idea was to paint myself with a flammable substance, drop from the rafters, land on the roof of a waiting car whose driver would reach out the window and set me on fire, and then peel out toward a wooden wall. But nothing went according to plan. First, my rope line snagged, and instead of rappelling to the car, I had to cut the rope and fall a long way onto its roof. Then the fire wouldn't light, and after the fifth or sixth attempt, I gave up and signaled to the driver to floor it. When he stomped on his brakes, I went flying through a wooden wall, just not on fire as planned. As I picked myself up to the cheers and groans of a confused audience, my heart leapt into my throat because I realized I had completely forgotten to apply the protective stunt gel to my head and face. If, they'd actually, if he had actually succeeded in setting me on fire, I would have sustained serious, possibly fatal injuries. The preacher listened to my story, didn't bother him, didn't set him off, didn't shut him down, didn't worry about the circumstances, didn't speculate. He said, sounds like God was still looking after you. His words cracked my pride. I began to question whether skill and occasional luck were really responsible for keeping me alive. 
Could God have been looking out for me even when I was so far astray? We had more conversations over the following year, and he was asked what was holding me back from committing to Jesus. He said, I remained hesitant, but the preacher's words, and I love this, the preacher's words were like a small stone lodged in my shoe. Just a persistent irritant to my comfortable but godless lifestyle. And as time went on, I found myself thinking about God on a daily basis. Is he real? Could he really love me again after I had turned my back on him? And then everything came to a head one night when he had another stunt lined up that was going to put his life at risk. And he went outside and he said, I need to pray. I need to talk to God and ask him to come into my life. But his, uh, the other side of his mind was going, you're just chicken. You're just scared you're going to die. This is hypocrisy to pray a prayer like this before you go do a, a life-threatening stunt. But his conscience and the Holy Spirit overcame his hesitation and he prayed right then and there and one of the things his preacher friend had told him he said it would be a hip i would be a hypocrite to pray because i haven't changed yet i need to change and and before i can do this and the guy told him said god's going to spend a lifetime changing you nothing changes overnight and he prayed that prayer right before he did that last stunt here's what i love about that story the preacher didn't speculate on what things he had no control over. He didn't worry about the circumstances that everybody in the company called him the preacher He trusted in the power of the Holy Spirit to use his words like a pebble in the guy's shoe. And here's the thing for us, men and women. We don't know what God's doing in somebody else's life. We can't know. All we need to do is follow the plan. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, so much for this word. Thank you for um, these stories that are out there because people are willing to write them down and print them and publish them. That we can see all the different ways that you have fulfilled this, these principles in practical ways in people's lives. Give us the courage, I pray, to be the people who will follow the plan and be your witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.